Well, don't be seated yet. Remain standing. Grab your Bible and uh, turn to Daniel chapter 2. And uh, if you don't have a Bible this morning, uh, we have provided one for you that's in the uh, chair in front of you in the pocket there. And um, if you're using one of those Bibles, we're going to be on page 430 today. And so we invite you to do that. And we want to let you all know as well that if you do not have a Bible, then by all means, please take that Bible with you. We want you to have uh, the scriptures in your home. And so we want you to take that with you. If you don't have one, um, help yourself to that. Um, but we're going to be there. But before we do that, um, in fact, I'm going to have you hold that place with your finger because I'm going to, we're going to do something. We're going to read our, our statement on the kingdom. And then I'm going to give you some introductory information to our text. I'll let you be seated and then we'll, we'll uh, read the text together. But let's, let's, uh, let's get that, uh, a statement up on the screen. And, uh, will you read this out loud with me together this morning? We believe that the kingdom of God was inaugurated by Jesus Christ and that his reign on earth is not reserved for a future date, but is available now for the transformation of individuals and societies until the consummation of all things at the return of Christ. And can anybody say amen to that? Praise God. You can have a seat. Um, we're still looking. Don't forget. Daniel 2, hold hold your finger there. We're still looking at the core beliefs, the tenets of our belief um, here at Northridge Life Church. We've been doing this for several weeks now. Um, as I remind you every week, we've studied the scripture. We've studied the, the, the nature of God and how we know who God is. We, we've studied regeneration. Last week we, st- we talked about the gospel. And this week we're going to examine the doctrine of the kingdom of God. Uh, in the book of Daniel, where you have your finger there, um, Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of Babylon, he has a dream that perplexes him greatly. Very uh, strange dream to him. And so what he does is, is also strange. In order to understand the dream he had, he orders all of the magicians and enchanters in his kingdom to first... Tell him what his dream was. He didn't tell him what his dream was. He says, you tell me what my dream was. And then he tells them to interpret that dream. Now he asks them to tell him what the dream was because he wants them to prove their authenticity. And and these guys that, that have surrounded Nebuchadnezzar in his court are horrified. They're appalled that he's asked them to do this. They're, they, they're, he's determined, however, that these wise men in his kingdom will not be able to hear the dream and then kind of throw something together with the details and make something out of thin air as their own interpretation. This is serious business to the king. And so he says, if you're so smart, if you're, if you're divin nation gets you so much. Tell me the dream, then tell me the interpretation. Well, none of them are able to do what they're asked to do. And therefore, Nebuchadnezzar flies into a huge rage. He, he orders that all of the wise men in Babylon, not just these guys, but all of them be executed as a result. He's had enough. And, and he he discovers in this moment that those who claim to have insight into such things are simply frauds. But see, Daniel, 
who had come to Babylon from, from uh, uh, Israel. He'd been, he'd been captured, or Judah rather, he'd been captured. He was now in exile in the land of Babylon. He knew nothing of this. He was considered one of Nebuchadnezzar's wise men, but he knew nothing about this, this thing that had happened with the king's dream. And so when the captain who was sent to kill him made it known to him why he was about to be killed, he asked for an opportunity to give the interpretation of the king's dream. And he prayed earnestly for answers before he went in to see the king. And guess what? God answered his prayer. So he boldly approached Nebuchadnezzar. He told the king that he had dreamed of a massive, frightening statue, that its head was of gold and its chest and its arms were of silver, its middle and its thighs were of bronze and its legs were of iron and its feet were made out of a mixture of iron and clay. But but lastly, the king had seen a rock that is described as a rock cut out not by human hands. Strike the image, just smack into the image. And it smashes it into dust, literally obliterates it. And the wind carries the dust away, never to be seen again, leaving nothing but the rock. And the rock grows and grows and grows. And it becomes a mountain in Nebuchadnezzar's dream that fills the entire earth. Now, if you take your Bibles, Daniel chapter 2, skip on down to verse 37, and we are going to read in Daniel's words the interpretation of this strange dream. He says to Nebuchadnezzar, you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hands he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Now, don't you think that probably made Nebuchadnezzar smile just a little bit? But he won't have reason to smile for very long. Because he says in verse 39, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these, all these other kingdoms before it. Verse 41, And as you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix together one and one another in marriage, mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix well with clay. And in the days of those kings, this is where I want you to really pay attention, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. 
It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand. And that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. May God bless the reading of his word. Daniel sees a vision of the future that has proven to be so accurate that secular skeptics have gone out of their way to try and disprove or at least reinterpret this story for centuries. But there is no credible way to deny the predictive quality of this vision. The first empire that he saw, this head of gold, was Nebuchadnezzar's own kingdom, the Babylonian Empire. The second empire, the chest and arms of silver, was the Medo-Persian Empire. The midsection of bronze was the Greek Empire. The legs of iron, along with the feet and toes of iron mixed with clay, was the mighty Roman Empire. The accuracy of the chronology of this dream, as well as the described characteristics of each successive world empire is astounding in its accuracy. But the real amazing thing about this dream, the real amazing thing, and what we're going to focus on today, is when the king sees this rock appear that demolishes the statue with all of the kingdoms, all of their ideologies, all of their pride, all of their might, everything represented by that statue is absolutely obliterated by the rock cut out without human hands. And this happens in the days of the kings of Rome. Hmm. Hmm. At the height of Rome's power... Caesar Augustus, probably the greatest emperor of Rome, Caesar Augustus decreed that the world should be taxed, causing a young, pregnant Jewish girl you might have heard of named Mary, along with her husband Joseph, to travel with him to their ancestral home in Bethlehem to be registered. And while there, Mary gives birth to a son. And this son, born to poor peasant parents, is like a nondescript stone in a vast sea of other rocks. There's nothing that makes him stand out to a mere casual observer. Even the one in the Old Testament who prophesied his birth, the prophet Isaiah, said this about him. He said, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. No one would have looked at that child and said, there's something special about that baby. No one would have. But make absolutely... No mistake that this rock, this rock cut out without human hands indicating his divine origin was hurtling head over heels towards the kingdoms of this world. This rock was on a, on a collision course with the kingdoms of this world and not a single one of them is going to escape the impact. They will be destroyed Beyond any recovery, thank God. 
Notice that the damage done by the rock in Nebuchadnezzar's dream not only smashes the kingdom of its own time, but it demolishes the memory, the legacy, and the influence of all the past kingdoms as well. Where is Babylon today? Where is the remnant of Babylon? Where is the remnant of, of the Medes and the Persians? Where is the remnant of Greece? Where is the remnant of mighty Rome? Like the dust blown by the wind, they are gone. But more than that, the rock changes the course of the future. Unlike the others that vanished, this kingdom will be the final kingdom. One that will last forever. Ever. Daniel says that it shall never be destroyed, shall never be left to another people, shall stand forever, a mountain filling the whole earth. It's this idea that is laid before us in the concept that we're talking about today of the kingdom of heaven or or sometimes the kingdom of God in scripture. It's the rule of God. Simply put, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is the rule of God where God is in charge. It, It affects individuals and cultures and it overrides all other powers to the glory of God. Habakkuk was speaking about it when he said in Habakkuk 2.4 that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The idea of the kingdom, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me, especially if you're not a Christian, if you're not someone that, that is, is uh, familiar with church terminology, listen to me. The idea of the kingdom of God is vastly superior to the idea of religion. The idea of the kingdom of God is vastly superior to a vague and homogenous spirituality. Vastly superior. The message of the kingdom of God is not just another message, but get this, it is the singular message of Jesus. That is what Jesus preached. The Bible says that, that, that this message of the kingdom is what is called the good news of the kingdom or the gospel of the kingdom. Many of Jesus' parables were preceded by these words. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like. And then he would describe different aspects of the kingdom and how it works. The book of Acts even tells us that Jesus Christ spent his days on earth after the resurrection, speaking about what to his disciples in Acts chapter 1? Speaking about the kingdom of God to his disciples. He instructed people during his ministry on how to inherit the kingdom, how to see the kingdom, how to enter the kingdom. He told us how that his mighty works were evidence that the kingdom had arrived. Matthew twelve twenty eight says, but if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, guess what? The kingdom of God has come upon you. He's saying the kingdom is here. When he said the kingdom has come upon you, Christ was saying that the kingdom was not just a future reality, but rather one to be experienced and enjoyed immediately. Now! It's a reality 
that was irrevocably inaugurated by the advent of his ministry. In fact, that's how he began his ministry with that proclamation. Matthew 3, 2, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. To be at hand means that it's imminent. It's the idea of one thing joining with another. In the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom, Jesus Christ was proclaiming that heaven was imminently destined to be inseparably and irreversibly fused with earth. I like that. The kingdom of God is where heaven meets earth. The kingdom of God is not something that will happen or that I will have to die and go to see happen. The kingdom of God happens as Jesus has declared it when heaven meets earth. The imminent coming of the kingdom is often misunderstood. Some frequently think that its arrival will only happen at the end of time. Others, like myself, believe that the Bible teaches, as I've been indicating, that the kingdom has already arrived and is ruling even now. God is ruling even now. Sounds great, but when you look around and you see violence, you see perversion, you see greed, you see blasphemy, ruining people's lives and corrupting the planet. It seems hard to believe that the kingdom is here, isn't it? Can we be honest? Is that sometimes a challenge to believe that the kingdom is here when you see all the garbage that that is so rampant in our society? Why all of this depravity if the kingdom is arrived? So which is right? I'd say the burden of proof is on me this morning. Which is right? Is the kingdom something that has arrived or is it something that will arrive someday? Uh, we can see in the scriptures that the, script, that, that, that the kingdom, as Jesus said, is at hand and it has, in fact, as he said, come upon you. But it's also something that is approaching. And we can scan the horizon of history And we can look for that day with great, great hope that there's something more than what we have right now that is coming, but that doesn't limit what we have right now. Amen? The theologian Gerhardus Voss, in in the early 20th century, he called this tension between what will be and what is, he called it the already and the not yet. George Eldon Ladd developed this concept way more thoroughly in the 50s. And he, he taught that in Scripture, the kingdom, this phrase of the kingdom, indicates God's supreme authority and his right to rule the cosmos. But it's also something that we have both presently entered into as believers and something that we will enter into more fully in the future. Now, Christ saying that the kingdom of God has come upon you does not nullify his use of the future tense as well. For example, in Matthew 25, 31, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. In other words, Jesus is pointing to something that hasn't happened yet, something that's still reserved for the future. But what we're going to concern ourselves with today is the now aspect of the kingdom. In two weeks, I'm really happy I get to speak about the end of all things and we'll focus more on the not yet aspect of the kingdom. But that kingdom, just know that we don't see it with fullness. We don't see it with clarity yet. 
But the reason I mention it today is because as Christians, we've got to always consider that our present state, no matter how good or bad, is not all that it will be. It's not all that there is, folks. They're going to get a whole lot better. The Bible says that the one who who overcomes, the one who endures to the end, will be saved. And when that says saved, it doesn't just mean dragged out of the fire. It means that you will see what it was all worth. And I'm waiting for that day. All of our struggles will be over. All of our victories won in the sweet hereafter when we see Jesus face to face. But even now, we can rejoice Listen to me. I don't know what your life is like right now. But even now, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can rejoice. Because you are not stuck in a miserable life just holding on tightly until you make it into heaven. The kingdom established by Jesus is advancing towards its fulfillment and nothing can stand in its way. Matthew 16, Jesus said to Peter, he said, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That does not mean that hell is not able to successfully attack us. It means that hell is not able to successfully stand up against us. We're the ones on the offensive. But as I said earlier, the kingdom is advancing progressively. This single rock is becoming a global mountain. And, and you and I find ourselves not at the beginning and not at the end, but right smack in the middle of history. The progressive nature of the kingdom's advance was the underlying message of most of Jesus' parables. Matthew thirteen thirty three is a great example, one of my favorite of the so-called kingdom parables. He says, it says, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. This parable is an efficiently packaged one single little sentence, but what a marvelous sentence. I once heard Dudley Hall one of our friends preached on this passage and he pointed out two qualities of the kingdom that are signified by the way the leaven or the yeast works its way through a lump of dough. First, the yeast affects the dough undetected. Once you infect the lump, once the yeast enters that lump of dough, the yeast begins to do its work without any noise, no fanfare. It just does what it was chemically structured to do. And it takes a while to see the results of the process in the rising of the bread. When Jesus infiltrated the world and began proclaiming the kingdom of God and demonstrating its reality through signs and wonders, no one except a few unimportant people really noticed. But after his death, after his resurrection and his ascension, the spirit was poured out on that handful of unimportant people, and a change began to be seen. The dough started to rise. First, it was limited to just one tiny, single little city, not tiny, but a single city in the Middle East, in Jerusalem, just one city. Then things began to happen in other parts of Judea. Next thing you know, Samaria had been reached with the gospel before long. The gospel of the kingdom had spread to Ephesus and Corinth and every major metropolitan area of Asia Minor until it reached the capital of Europe, right dead in the center of Europe, into Rome, in the heart of Europe. And all of this happened, this is what's so mind-blowing, all of this happened in one 
single generation. No internet, no TV, no radio, no telegraph, no printing press. Just the proclamation of the gospel as signs and wonders following caused it to spread like wildfire in one single generation. But the kingdom also spread not only undetected, but it spread undeterred. After the first miracle done by the hands of the apostles, the authorities came down hard. Next thing you know, the apostles and the disciples were being arrested and even beaten. Soon after that, they began to be martyred for preaching the the message of the kingdom. Now listen to me. When the state requires that you pledge your allegiance by declaring that Caesar is Lord, but you insist that Jesus is Lord, at some point you're going to butt heads. The, 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 uh, the Caesar was not the kind of king, the Caesars were not the kinds of kings to look at the church and go, agree to disagree. Either Caesar was Lord or Jesus was Lord. And the declaration that Christians had that Jesus was Lord was seen as a treasonous act against the empire. But listen, no matter how intense the church was persecuted, no matter how intensely the church was persecuted, the message kept advancing. One by one, all of the apostles except John were murdered. And John only survived because they tried to boil him in oil and God spared his life. When one Christian fell, three more seemed to take his place. And since that time, ever since that time in the first century, rogue governments have tried to kill the messengers. They've tried to outlaw the message. They've tried to destroy, destroy the scriptures that preserve the message. And every single one has miserably failed. Every single one. Because his truth still marches on. His truth still marches on. The rock, folks, in right in front of you, the rock is becoming a mountain. It's filling the earth undetected and undeterred, just like Daniel saw. Which brings me to my next point. The kingdom of heaven is an invisible kingdom. Let's read this together. Luke 17 says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, they got this future mentality, that he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. He's not saying, Jesus is not saying here, that the evidence of the kingdom can't be discerned. Listen, you see the evidence of the kingdom every time God answers our prayers. Every time we pray for the sick and they're healed, you see evidence of the kingdom. Mostly we see it when the gospel is preached and someone trusts in Christ submitting to the king of the kingdom. But rather it means, when he says not comes with observation, you say here it is or here it is, rather it means that several things don't apply to the kingdom that apply to the kingdoms of this world. First, this kingdom, get this, this kingdom is not a localized kingdom. What do I mean by that? This kingdom is not headquartered in Jerusalem, or Rome for that matter, or Salt Lake City for that matter. This this kingdom is not a localized kingdom. You cannot point to its capital city unless you point upward. 
You can't point to its capital city. The subjects of this kingdom, this is the beauty of the church, the beauty of the kingdom, the subjects of this kingdom will be drawn from every single people group on the face of the earth to the naked bushman, to the most elevated, sophisticated academic. Every single one of them will will be represented in the kingdom of heaven. Everyone. Regardless of age, gender, political affiliation, race, socioeconomic status, the kingdom of God will be represented by them all. Next, it's invisible because it's not organized in normal ways. It's been called a kingdom upside down. In this kingdom, servants rule, sufferers are blessed, the rich have a difficult time buying their way in. In it, the humble are exalted, the exalted are humbled, the first are last and the last are first. It's invisible because it can't be managed by the world's economics. Here, it's better to give than receive. And those who abandon everything are promised that they'll be rewarded a hundredfold. We don't enter it, we don't enter this kingdom through our influence or even our worthiness. These things are meaningless passports into the kingdom. They mean nothing. Jesus said to see it, to enter it, you must be born again. Also, the determination to press into this kingdom carries a continual high price. Paul told the church in Acts 14.22, he said that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. But despite the promise of many tribulations, the kingdom is a place of great reward to those who press into it. Great reward. Great reward. Matthew 19.27, Peter said to Jesus, he said, See, we have left everything to follow you. Their jobs, their homes, they've left everything. And what will we then have? What, what's in it for us, Jesus? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone, you're everyone. You are everyone. It's not just ta- he's not just talking to 12 guys in, in the first century. You are everyone. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. In the movie, I know this is a big theological movie with a lot of theological ramifications, but in the movie Men in Black, <clears throat> Tommy Jones's, Tommy Lee Jones's character K is recruiting Will Smith's character J for the secret agents, the secret agency that they're a part of. And after telling J that he will have to sever every human tie and erase every shred of evidence that he ever existed, J asks a clarifying question. Is it worth it? To which K replies, oh yeah, it's worth it if you're strong enough. Let me tell you something, the kingdom of God worth it everything you could ever possibly conceive that you might ever possibly lay down 
for the sake of this kingdom is worth it. Even if it costs you your very life, it's worth it. Think about it. To know the Almighty God intimately, it's worth it. To know that your sins, no matter how black, are completely forgiven, oh, it's worth it. To know that you will spend the rest of forever in perfect peace, perfect joy, perfect satisfaction, perfect rest. Let me tell you something. It's worth it. But unlike what Tommy Lee Jones told Will Smith, there's a problem for us. None of us are strong enough. None of us are strong enough. So someone had to be strong enough to earn our place in the kingdom for us. The benefits of the kingdom, therefore, could only be received by people like you and I as a gift and never as a wage. No one owes you the kingdom. No one owes you the kingdom. But there is one who is very much willing to give you the kingdom. In a lust Fueled frenzy, King Herod made a promise to the daughter of his brother's wife, who, who he had taken as a wife sinfully for himself, as she had danced for him, and he was in this, this state of lust, and, and in the moment he said, ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it up to half my kingdom. By comparison, Jesus Christ looks you right in the heart, And he says, as an expression of pure and perfect love, ask me and I will give you the entire kingdom. I'll give it all to you. I won't hold anything back. I'll pay the full price, my very own life, and it'll be yours with all of its love, all of its power, all of its blessing. And he confirms this in Luke 12, 32, when he says these wonderful words, Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. What good is your stuff? Come on! You're a recipient of the kingdom of God? And you're going to cling to your stuff like this? Sell it. Give it away. Provide yourself with money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure in heaven that doesn't fail. Where no thief approaches, no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where's your heart this morning? Aren't you tired? Aren't you just exhausted chasing another buck? Aren't you just worn out chasing another scheme, another relationship, another empty worldly promise? Don't you want something more sure, a more stable foundation, something more lasting? Well, you are only going to find that as a subject of the kingdom of God. Only as a subject of the kingdom. You might wonder how you could live life if you truly pursued Christ with everything. If he were, listen to me, your only priority. Well, there's a promise for you. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, but seek first the kingdom of God 
and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. No one explain, seek first does not mean make it your main priority and have a bunch of priorities over there. It means make it the only priority. It is the highest thing. It has the absolute prime place in your life. The kingdom of God is all I got. And he promises all these things will be added to you. These things he's referring to are the things you need for life and happiness. But real happiness, not as you and I define it. Listen, I am terrible at defining happiness. I think all this garbage, all this stuff, all this affirmation that of my own pride and ego is going to make me happy. And i got to tell you something, 47 years has taught me it will not make me happy. It won't. So you younger ones take that as a warning. You older ones give me an amen. But it will not make you happy. The things that it's referring to are the things that God has set aside for us to really give us a satisfying life. And I hope this morning that your heart longs for God's rule more and more today and every day. Nothing can stop the advance of the kingdom. Nothing The mountain will crush all other powers and fill the earth. My question to you is, will you be a part of it? Will you be a part of this kingdom that's taking over? Will you enjoy its benefits? Will you be satisfied, on the other hand, to just stay in the rat race and scramble for your measly piece of cheese? It takes faith. It takes an obedient movement of the will to participate in this kingdom think about it peter james and john left their fishing business matthew left his cushy government job paul left his religion thomas left his doubt the man in the region of the gadarenes left his chains mary magdalene left her sin lazarus left his grave the apostles left their comfort and stephen left his life to enter the kingdom Everyone, listen, I'm not asking you to make a decision for Christ this morning because everyone who enters the kingdom must leave something behind. It's the only way in. You got to trade up. In fact, you don't just have to leave something behind. You got to leave everything behind. All of it. Every bit of it. None of the people I mentioned in that list ever regretted what they left behind. None of them were going like this. They dropped it. Like a song we sang this morning, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Jesus told a young man, to sell everything, follow him, and he would have treasure in heaven. And sadly, he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. It's gripping too tightly to the treasure he thought he had on earth. So the question is, will you walk today in the faith of the apostles or in the unbelief of the rich young ruler? Ask yourself. Take a moment. This isn't a lecture, it's a conversation. Ask yourself, just in the privacy of your own place there in your seat, what will I do? How will I obey in order to enter the kingdom today? What is my gripping to? 
What am I holding tightly to that's keeping me from entering into the kingdom? What is it? If you'll have the guts to ask him, he will answer you. He'll point it out and he'll show you the way to freedom through obedience. not saying in your flesh it's going to feel good. It may not. But is it worth it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's worth it. It's worth it. Matthew 6.10, Jesus commands us to pray. When he's teaching us how to pray, he says to pray this to the Father. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Where on earth? In Africa? In Asia? No, no, no. In my little corner of the earth, God, let your kingdom come. In my little place, in, in, in my home, God, in the place where I work, in the place where I go to school, in the, in the places where I hang out, where I do my hobbies and, 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 and meet with my friends, Lord God, let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is the heart's cry of the one who truly wants the very best that God is willing to give and not just the very best that they're able to come up with on their own. So my question to you this morning, are you willing to pray that prayer this morning? Looking over the landscape of your life and saying, God, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. Your will be done. See, the first thing you got to lay down to enter the kingdom is your will. (laughs) Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Are you willing to pray that prayer leaving absolutely nothing on the table? Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, God, I want to lead this church in repentance. I want to be the, the first repenter, God. And I hope that there would be many that would follow me, but that's not really even my business, God. It's just my business to be obedient. And so, God, I, I want to repent to, to you for the kingdom that I have tried to build for myself. I want to repent to you for the things that I have furnished that kingdom with, the things that I thought would be enough to satisfy me. God, I ask you that you would do a work in my heart, a cleansing, satisfying work, Lord God, that would make your kingdom my truest desire. That you would make my kingdom what I really, make your kingdom rather, Lord, what I really want and what I want to be a part of, the the kingdom that I want to enter, God. God, will you just... Let the rock not cut out with human hands just smash into my kingdom, Lord God. Leave nothing but dust. And then let the wind of the Holy Spirit come and blow every little grain of dust away where it's never seen again. I thank you for that, Lord God. God, I pray that you would just open our ears, everybody in this building, Lord God, that we would hear you, God, that we would hear you calling us to lay things down, that we would hear you like the rich young ruler saying, Sell it all. Give it all away. Let go of it all. Loosen your grip. And then follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven, Lord God. God created desire in us for heavenly treasure. In Jesus' name, amen.